Good evening, and my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, which we started right around Advent, and we're going through till Easter. And we have now completed the preparation for ministry. And so last week we looked at the temptation. Um, in a way, you could consider this like training camp before the season starts. He, um, he was born. That was the first thing that happened. He was worshipped by these wise men, worshipped by these Gentile um, astrologers. Then he was rescued from Herod's death troops. Then he got baptized. Uh, Jonah preached on that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we saw him in his initial defeat of Satan, the temptations in the desert. And that's all kind of pre-season. And now the season actually begins. And you can kind of see this as a snapshot of the entire season. This is the first game, so to speak. And in verse 23, it says, He was teaching in their synagogues and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And that is a good summary of the entire ministry of Christ. So if you don't know much about the Gospels, good time to come tonight because this is kind of a um, daily description of what he was doing. So if he had like a calendar app, it would have said, you know, 7 a.m. till 9 a.m. prayer. That's the first thing he did. We don't see that here, but we know that from other passages. That's how he started his day. And then maybe 11 a.m. teach at the synagogue. Maybe that was just Saturday, but probably he did that more than just Saturday. From this passage, it sounds like he did a lot more than that. And then maybe two to four uh, heal diseases. You can imagine all these people coming to him in that window of time and bringing them their sick and he would heal them. And then maybe four to six, he would do his exorcisms. So then all the people with demons would come to him and he would cast them out. And then I imagine in the evening he would gather his people, not just everyone, but his people, the disciples, and he would have this kind of small group discussion or teaching. So it's this perfect mixture of two things. On the one hand, you see all this healing And on the other hand, you see all this teaching going on. And Matthew actually underlines that structure in the next five chapters. So in chapters 5 through 7, we're going to look at that next week, the Sermon on the Mount. That is his most famous teaching. And then after that, you have chapters 8 and 9, which are these 10 miracles. That's all the healing. So again, those are the two things, teaching, healing, And if you notice, Matthew compares this all to a a great sunrise. Like, think of the greatest sunrise that you've ever seen. In verse 16, he's quoting Isaiah here, written 700 years earlier. The prophet writes, the people dwelling... uh, Actually, Isaiah writes walking. So Matthew makes it even more intense. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And so this is like... After a really long period of rain and cold, something like right now, imagine tomorrow morning it was totally clear and the sun came up and it was just this amazing kind of surreal light just shining out on trees with ice on them. Um, you know, th- those kind of sun- sunrises are the most intense where there's been a lot of darkness. And that's what, that's what Matthew is depicting here, a glorious sunrise. And so with healing, you have both... Uh, Healing and teaching are both kind of descriptions of what happens when light shines. So when light shines on a plant, it'll heal the plant. Even people get healed by being in the sunshine. And then also, of course, light, you know, you wouldn't see anything in this room right now if the lights were all cut off. So light illuminates. uh, It teaches. So those are the two things that uh, Matthew's talking about here. And I want to look at them in turn. First, the healing and then the teaching. Because I think the teaching is actually more important than the healing. That's why we go second with teaching. 
So first of all, where is all this happening? And why is it happening there? It's happening in Galilee. And if you don't know much about the New Testament, that's where a lot of the ministry of Jesus takes place. And Galilee, it says in verse 12, is where he withdrew. And withdraw means Galilee is an out-of-the-way place. So if you you were trying to um, withdraw somewhere and get away from all your friends and people you know and just cut off internet, uh, put down the phone, everything like that, this will be the type place you would go, Galilee. And Galilee was kind of like Tarboro, North Carolina, which is where my wife's from, where um, there's a diner there called Highway 55. There's actually one of those here, too. But the one in Tarboro, the Highway 55, had a sign written in the register that said, clinging to our Bibles and guns. And uh, our waitress there had a, a necklace that had a machine gun on the, on the necklace. So it's a little uncomfortable when she took our order. But that is um, a depiction of kind of a Galilee. It's a, it's a place that... Sophisticated people from Jerusalem, the elite, uh, cultural elite from Jerusalem, would look at Galilee and, and say, those are, those are rednecks. Those are uneducated, uncouth, unclean, and they're, they're pig eaters, as the Jews would have said. They're, they're Gentiles. There's a lot of Gentiles in Galilee. So in verse 15, it says Galilee of the Gentiles, because it's north of Jerusalem. And when the Assyrians came and attacked, they came from the north, and they actually... In that area of Galilee, a lot of Assyrians settled there. So there was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And so why would Jesus withdraw to Galilee? Why would he start his ministry in Galilee? Why would the light shine in Galilee? That's the question. And I think the answer is because um, God is clearly drawn to places of darkness. There's this kind of preferential option in a way um, where God is drawn into places of darkness. Because in verse 16, again, it says that it's in the, the region of the shadow of death. You know, not Disney World, um, not the Haynes Mall, but in the region of the shadow of death. That's where the light shines. And so when you encounter Jesus most strongly, it's usually in your darkest hour. I don't know if you've experienced that if you're a Christian, but I have experienced that. And in particular, it uses this phrase, uh, the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. It's a famous Old Testament saying. The book of Job uses the shadow of death a lot. The book of Job is about suffering. And so in the book of Job, the shadow of death is compared to underground mines of ore, deep in darkness. And then another phrase from Job, uh, gloom, thick, terrifying blackness during midday. And then another phrase from Job, a comparison to the shadow of death. Job says, my face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. So his face is red and yet on his eyelids there's darkness. That's the place that the light has shined. And there are these apartments um, on East 3rd Street. And uh, I'll sometimes walk over there with my friend. We'll go prayer walking and the grass is really torn up. So if it's rained, it's very muddy. Uh, the windows are broken in a lot of the units. The paint is peeling off the doors. Some of the doors are off their hinges. The sidewalks are just strewn with beer cans and other items, drug paraphernalia. Uh, there are a lot of dogs that are like on chains and they're very thin and sickly. And, you know, that's a tight place um, where a lot of people don't want to be. And God goes right to those places. That's kind of where he attacks, if you want to say it that way. He, he is aggressive in his pursuit of those tight places. Places like orphanages. We went to the 
Good Shepherd Fold Orphanage in uh, near Jinja, Uganda, and it was a place that is not a comfortable place, but it's clearly a place where you see a lot of the light of Christ. Uh, places like hospice care. You know, when I visited someone in hospice care, I didn't really want to go in there, frankly. It was just not a place that I was looking forward to going. Or the, um, the psychiatric intensive care unit, when I visited parishioners in those intensive care units, I didn't really want to go there. I wasn't looking forward to that. And yet when you go there, oftentimes there's this sense of um, the presence of Christ in a different way. It says in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee and he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And that might sound cool and exciting from our point of view and maybe thinking about uh, Jesus. It sounds like that would be a great thing if you were Jesus. But if you really imagine that and think of the smells, the smells of all these sick people, this is in a time where there isn't really hygiene. You don't have hospitals. Um, you don't have Purell and hand sanitizer and stuff like that. So you can imagine the screams from the people. You can imagine the disfigured limbs of these people who he was healing. That was not a pleasant place. That was not a place that you would want to be where Jesus is healing these people. I heard a Diane Ream interview this week with this um, guy named Albert Racehoss Sample. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you, if you can find that NPR. Albert Racehoss Sample. And he was the first ex-convict in Texas to actually work for the governor's office. So he's an amazing story. And this guy was um, in prison almost his whole life after about 13. In and out and in and out. And he was one time sentenced to a really long term in solitary confinement. And apparently that's about as bad as it gets, even in prison. Because you are in pitch blackness all alone. There are no sounds. No one is checking in on you for a month. There's actually a limit on this stuff now because it's, it's so psychologically devastating. And one time it t- totally broke him where he said to himself, all you're going to amount to is a bug in a matchbox. That's his phrase. That's how he felt at that moment. And he said, right at that moment, this thing happened to him. And this is what he said. I lowered my head and I cried out for the first time in my life. I hid my face in my hands and I cried, God, please help me. I was not the praying type of man. I had almost never prayed before. I could, but I could see this little glimmer of light between my fingers. So this is in solitary confinement. He sees light between his fingers. And he said, I knew there was someone in the room with me. I didn't just see it. I could feel it all over my body. And it was saying, don't you worry about a thing. And he said, I stayed there 28 more days. And those were the finest 28 days I had ever spent in my life. I felt loved. I felt like someone cared about me. I felt like I was someone. And he finds out later that that presence is the presence of Christ. And that uh, Christ, Albert realizes, is always moving into places of pain. And that's what he did the rest of his life as he worked for the governor's office. It says in verse 23 again, he healed every disease and every affliction And one commentary said, we see Jesus the therapist here, working across the entire range of the human problem. He heals those with organic and psychic and spiritual and nervous diseases. He heals anyone in torment. Anyone in torment. That's where Jesus goes and heals. It says in verse 24, this is almost even more comprehensive, they brought to him all the sick. 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures. And notice the distinction there. A lot of people nowadays think they were really superstitious back then and they conflated epilepsy and demon possession. And there might have been that some of that back then, but clearly Matthew is distinguishing. You have uh, epilepsy here and you have demons here, paralytics. He healed them all. I mean, you can imagine if you had heard this guy was coming, that this light was coming, you would have taken your sickest friend and gone right to him. In London, when I was living there one time uh, in a really cold patch of the year in December, uh, we, we, it was, there was a 65 degree sunshine day. And we went to Hyde Park, the biggest park in the city, and there were just people everywhere. People just would come out of the woodwork to be in the light. Because when the light shines in the darkness, that's where you want to go. Because there's, there's a healing power to the light. And maybe the church seems like, this is a very sad thing, but maybe the church seems like the last place you would want to come if you were sick. If you were depressed or guilty or anxious, you might, people even tell me, like, I, I couldn't go to church last night because I just felt so bad. And I understand that, but it's so tragic because... This is supposed to be the house where the God who shines in the darkness comes. This this is the very place to come if you are depressed. In the same way that you would say, I feel horrible, I'm going to go see my therapist. It should be even more of a sense like, I feel even more terrible, I'm going to go to church. Because I'm going to be healed there. I'm going to find this God who shines in the darkness. This is not like a rotary club, which is a great place. They do great things, but that's not what the church is. Uh, It's not a gathering of model citizens. You know, the church is more like a mobile hospital ward. It's like the, um, the caravan, you know, that came up through Mexico. That's more like what you see in verse 24. We have the, all these people who are afflicted with diseases and oppressed by demons and they have seizures and they're paralyzed. I find it really amazing when we pray for, um, pe- for, for just mental health or we pray uh, against mental unhealth. But every, I think twice we did this last fall. And I was really struck by how many people prayed. I don't know if you were here when that happened or if you recognized that or noticed that. But uh, at least twice in the fall, and I think, I think that's what it was, two times, uh, we prayed. And so the person leading the prayer, like Jonah just said, pray for any, anyone, uh, anyone you know, maybe yourself, struggling with mental illness. And just tons of people prayed. Uh, people who never pray, prayed. And uh, it just occurred to me how one of the treasures of the church is the fact that we can pray for each other with our sicknesses. All of them, not just mental health, but certainly that one too. Um, but, you know, there is a place in our worship service really for, for healing and prayer. It's, we don't really do it right now. We used to actually do it, but nobody really availed themselves of it, so we stopped, which was probably a mistake. But, um, you know, a great time to do it would be like right around the Lord's Supper because that's a time of great healing. So I'll charge the servant leaders with this. I don't usually do that. But uh, let's figure out a way to, to have um, healing, prayers for healing somehow mixed up either in our worship service or somewhere in our church. could be at a prayer meeting, but we just need to do that more because there is enormous power. Again, I'm not saying anything against the medical profession or medicine. Uh, drugs are really important. I, I take drugs myself, so um, not that kind of drug, but I am on medication. I think that's the way to put it. I'm on medication, so I believe in medication. Um, because in the region of the shadow of death, in verse 16, that's where light shines in. So uh, that's the first point. 
the power of the light to heal. The second point is the power of the light to teach or illuminate what is real and true. Which, as I said earlier, I think is more important than the other. Uh, As important as healing is, I think, you know, Jesus obviously couldn't really reduce the percentage uh, overall in Judea by a whole lot of of unhealth or um, of disease. You know, he couldn't really make much of a dent into the overall percentage of people with diseases in the first century in Judea. That's that wasn't enough for him. He just couldn't really make that much of an impact in that way. But what he could do, and what he did, is he trained people to be healers. That's really what he was there for. So in verse 17, if you notice, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach. And it doesn't say heal right there. At the very beginning, when it introduces us to his ministry, it starts out with Teaching. So healing, I think, is secondary. There's one time he was healing all these people, and it says that he told his disciples, I need to leave right now and go to another place because we need to teach. And so I think that's primary. Partly because with a snap of his fingers, God can heal someone. He does it regularly. Um, he can just zap someone into health. But you can't make a disciple just by snapping your fingers or casting a spell on someone. You can't do it that way. It's a very slow process. And it involves the person's will. Whereas with healing, it doesn't have to involve the person's will. They can be unconscious and there can be healing. But with discipleship and learning and becoming a student of Jesus, that requires your participation. And if you look at verse 17, it's interesting what he teaches. Like Matthew doesn't give us a lot about the message of his teaching. That comes later. But right now he encapsulates it with one word or actually a little phrase. The word is... From that time on, he began to preach, saying, repent. And if there's one word, I guess, that you could say summarizes all of his teaching, it would be that word, repent. But then he also adds the reason, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he he taught a lot about this idea that because the kingdom is here, therefore, we need to be repenting. And repenting just literally means turning around. It's that word that is often considered uh, kind of harsh, like repent or burn or something like that. that You see street preachers talking about repentance, but it just means to change your mind or have your have your life turned around. Like when you see someone driving into McDonald's drive through, you want to say, you know, turn around, repent. That's not the way to health. You're going the wrong way. If you know Plato, the philosopher Plato, he has the allegory of the cave. And there's those people who were who were trained to the cave and they're looking at the wall and all they see is shadows. And, and then in the, in the, in the parable, uh, they, they break their chains and they no longer just look at shadows and they turn to the light and they go out of the cave and see the sunlight. And that's what is going on here. That's what repentance means. You turn around, you stop looking at the shadow land and you, you see the actual sun behind you. C.S. Lewis uh, describes repentance this way. I haven't seen a better definition. He says, humans <clears throat> have tried to set up on their own. We try to behave as if we belong to ourselves. Uh, we, are rabble, we are rebels who must lay down our arms. He says, laying down your arms and surrendering and saying that you are sorry is what Christians call repentance. It means unlearning, unlearning all of the self-conceit and self-will in your life. It means killing part of yourself and undergoing a kind of death. I think my favorite part is unlearning all of the self-conceit and self-will 
in our lives. That's what repentance... Obviously, that can't happen one time. It's not just like you do it and it's over. That's not the way repentance works. It happens all the time. And the Sermon on the Mount is essentially unpacking the word repentance. So it's like, this is what it looks like to repent in this area, and this area, and this area. And the very first area, we'll talk about this next week, the the very first area of repentance is for you to change your mind about what the good life should be like. What do you think a good human life is like? What, What would be success in your life? If you could live your life the way that you think it should go, in the end, what would that look like? And... The answers that he gives are, uh, A, <clears throat> you would be very poor in spirit. So you, you, would, you would have a, very, a life of humility. Uh, also, you would, uh, you would mourn a lot over your sin. Uh, you would also be very meek, and you would be humble, and uh, you would not always try to be defending yourself or uh, letting other people know how great you are. You would also be hungering, you'd be hungry a lot and thirsty a lot for more, for righteousness. And you'd be merciful. And you'd always be making peace with other people. And you'd be pure in heart. And that is a very, very countercultural way to describe the good life. And that's part of what repentance means. Is you, would, you, would, you would agree with Jesus that that's how one should live. But then he goes on to say, um, <clears throat> no lust, no anger, uh, no hypocrisy, no worry, no hate, and no hoarding. And, and more. But you're not going to see like a TV series of ads for those kind of things. That's not the way that the world thinks about the good life. And so that, that, that involves repentance. And we also see, and I'm glad Matthew did this, he, he doesn't just leave us to wonder what repentance would look like in an actual life. He gives us these four people. That comes next in the story here. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. This is a story of repenting. Uh, This is a story of turning your life around, changing your mind radically. So verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, uh, he saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew, casting a net into the sea. Verse 18, he's alone. No disciples yet. Uh, We always think of him with disciples, so now you've got to think of him alone. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he's looking around, and then he sees... And I guess he's talking to the, the father and, and he thinks those are the ones. That's how I'm going to start right there. So he goes to Peter and Andrew and these guys are, they are blue collar fishermen. They are like the construction workers around Baptist Hospital. Um, these guys work nine to five. Um, they, <clears throat> they are probably guys who don't make a whole lot of money. They wouldn't be poor, but they would be... Um, laborers with their hands. They don't own these boats or anything like that. So these are pretty simple folk. And um, Jesus says, follow me. And you can imagine how crazy that would be for someone to walk up to a construction worker over at Baptist and tell the, tell the guy, just, uh, I want you to just put down all your tools right now. Take off you know, your, your hard hat and your vest. And I want you to follow me right now. And I'm going to show you how to live. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing to think that anybody did that. I'm sure the people around him, the fishermen around Jesus and these two thought he was absolutely crazy. And even crazier that they actually did it. It, it says in verse 20, they immediately left their nets and followed him. You would think that they would have at least consulted uh, their wives or their children or a couple of friends. But to immediately leave just shows that there's, 
something going on with the call of Christ that could lead to that immediate repentance. And there's nothing evil about fishing. But it's just that they're, they're turning their life around. They're changing their mind. Now, James and John are even more amazing because these guys don't just work uh, blue-collar jobs. They own, they own the boats. Uh, it says their boats in verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers. Now he's got Peter and Andrew. Now he sees James and John in their boats with their father. So it's a family business. And they're mending their nets. Their nets. Verse 21 says he immediately called them and they left their boat and their father. Which he was probably very upset about this. You can, I'm sure he did not let them go easily. Uh, his, his sons in the family business and yet they followed him. And so I think what this might mean to us is that <clears throat> repentance could be turning your back on anything. And again, this doesn't mean it's an evil thing. But it's, it's turning your back on anything where you're, it's hindering the call of Christ in your life. I mean, it, it could be your career. It could be something about your family. It could be your city. These guys left all three of those things. It could be uh, a certain amount of wealth or it could be academic striving and uh, wanting to look good for your parents or your friends. Um, it could be a certain type of culture that you're mixed up into. Uh, Maybe the party scene or something like that. Again, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Um, but um, there's something, I think, that is in your life that, that Christ is calling you to re- repent of. And I know this. What, I don't know what that is, but I know this. That when you do repent, um, you're always turning from yourself, like C.S. Lewis said. Your self-will, your self-conceit, and you're turning to people. And it's usually people you don't want to be turning to. It's certainly not people you would have chosen to turn to. So if you, if you look at verse 25, these great crowds. So you first have Andrew and Peter. And they might be a little bit surprised that James and John are with them. Because these are like the owners of a construction firm that they might have even worked for. So that's surprising. And I don't know if James and John would have liked that Peter and Andrew were there. But now they're together. Well, pretty soon in verse 25, you have these giant crowds. And I can imagine that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were not real happy about these crowds. Because it was bad enough they were from Galilee. Of course, they were from Galilee. But they would probably consider themselves as superior to the other Galileans because they're Jews. But not just Galilee. The Decapolis was totally pagan. These are ten cities that are outside of Galilee. These are not Jews. And yet, great crowds came from there. They also came from Jerusalem and Judea, which would have been great. Uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John would have loved that. These would have been the most uh, sincere of all the Jews. So they were very happy with those people. But then you also had people beyond the Jordan. And those are like the enemies of Israel. So you've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they're seeing these people coming in who used to be diseased. They used to be lepers. They used to have demons in them. They eat pork. They shave their heads like the Romans did. They wear togas. Uh, Their speech is probably lewd and crude. It takes a a while to get out of those patterns of speech. And so you can imagine how uncomfortable these four fishermen were with this crowd that Jesus was calling them into. And I think whenever there's repentance going on, that kind of thing happens. So, uh, you know, for one thing, the church is a group of people that you don't choose. There's a lot of places in life where um, you choose the people around you. In the church, not so much. Even if you choose Salem, 
Um, it doesn't mean you're, you know exactly what you're getting with the people around you. You might then get in a small group with someone you don't like at all. Um, but I think repenting often involves like having people in your home that you wouldn't normally have in your home. You wouldn't have chosen to have in your home. Or going to parties that take energy that you don't really want to be there. Or even starting a conversation with someone that you would rather not talk to. Or coming to worship. That's a form of repentance. You're coming to worship with people who are not like you. And when God saved me, um, he took me from, of course, never worshiping. I was an atheist and I didn't want to worship. But um, part of my repentance was coming to a church that had all these suburban Republicans in it. And I hated suburban Republicans, even more than I hated Christians. And I remember this very vividly when I walked into that sanctuary. There were all these people I had made fun of my whole life, and I was horrified. There were people uh, who liked Amy Grant and Christian music, like Michael W. Smith, and they would watch films like, um, what is that, the, the, the Titans or something like that. I can't remember, the football film with the Giants, Facing the Giants, something like that. Anyway, that kind of stuff. And they, um, they, they had their hands in the air, and they prayed out loud, which was really upsetting. Um, even, like, even this service would have been a little bit upsetting to me. And they use the word just in their prayers a lot. That's kind of gone out of favor in the uh, evangelical world. But they, people used to say, I just want this and I just want that. And they would be praying for things that seemed like they were comforts in life. And, uh, and it seemed very exclusive to me. So anyway, repenting for me was, was being willing to go back and go back. And it did take me several years to actually get involved in a church. And, um, and yet God kept draw me back and back and back. And repentance is very hard. Um, it's very hard. It wouldn't be called repentance if it wasn't hard. But the good news is that um, the, the really good news is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave us alone to repent. Because if he did, we wouldn't do it. Or we would stop doing it. Um, he doesn't say, this is very important, the wordings here are really important. He doesn't say repent so that the kingdom can come into your life. A lot of times Christians act like that. Like, First you repent, and then you get all the good stuff. That's not how the gospel works. It's you've got the good stuff. Now repent. The kingdom is already here. Now repent. See, repentance comes after the fact of the kingdom in your life. So Jesus didn't set up a booth in Capernaum and just wait. You know, like Lucy in the Peanuts, she has her psychiatric booth, and so the doctor is in, she's just sitting there psychiatric help, waiting for someone to come to her. Jesus could have done that. He could have just sat down in the square in Capernaum and waited, and he didn't do that. Um, if, he, if he had done that, nobody would have come to him at all. Instead, he goes to Peter, and he goes to Andrew and James and John. He goes into their workplaces. He's very invasive in that way. He goes into their workplace, and I, I think he probably used their names. I think he probably used their names. He, he knew someone else's name in another story, so I, I bet he knew their name, then it would have been very creepy to have your name called by this rabbi that you don't know at all. So the good news is he does not say, I want you to figure it out on your own, how to repent, and I'll be back later to grade you. I'll see how you're doing, I'll give you a grade. He doesn't do that at all. He, he keeps coming to us and saying, follow me, follow me. You failed again, you failed again, you failed again. You're getting better, you're getting a little better at this and that and the other, but I'm coming back to you again and again. Follow me. Follow me. I mean, he started the relationship with you. You didn't start it with him. He started it with you. And so he's not going to just give up now. Or he's not going to just put it back on you now. And, you know, I started it. Now you've got to finish it. He started it. He's going to maintain it. Because we're always drifting back to our nets, to our old ways, our old family ways. And he keeps coming to us again and again and again and saying, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how you do it. Change your mind. 
Remember what I said to you yesterday and the day before that? Repent, follow me. And it's almost uncomfortable how he kind of stalks us. Um, whenever we get too into our children's lives, they always say, Dad, you're being such a stalker. Um, and, and in a way, he kind of does that with us. It's very uncomfortable how much he's just sitting there. You know, you turn around a corner and there he is. And it's almost like when someone's got a huge crush on you, which I don't know anything about that, but if you might have experienced that, or someone has a crush on you and they're always texting you and calling you and showing up wherever you are, and they won't leave, they just linger around. Um, if you've ever experienced that, I imagine that's not really enjoyable, although it might sound enjoyable. But it's like, and this is kind of irreverent, but it's like Jesus has fallen in love with you, and he's just always there, always there before you know he's going to be there. It's like he's waiting in the restaurant for you to get there. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's not something that necessarily makes you happy for him to be doing that. But he's not needy and weird like someone who might you know, have a crush on you. He is, in fact, the one who is not needy. He's very strong. He, he's very happy without you. He'd be happy to live without you. But he's just doing this for your sake. That he just keeps showing up. And he's beautiful and glorious. And you're needy. And he knows you're needy. So he keeps showing up. And that's, that's what essentially he's doing here at this table is once again he's showing up and declaring his love for us and um, you can consider this like the light going out on the night of his death he was the light but the light kind of went out in a way when he died Um, because he cared so much about the dark world that he was willing to to be completely buried by it and of course the light bursts out again at the resurrection but at this moment, um, what this supper symbolizes is his death, where the light goes out for a time. That he, he, he is willing to be extinguished by the world. But he does that in love of us, so that he can show up again and keep telling us, repent, follow me, follow me. And so if you're someone um, who feels like you, 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 you know Christ, uh, you, you know that he loves you, but you don't feel very much love for him, um, and you don't know if you should do this right now because you, uh, you have fall, fallen so far from him. All the more reason to do it, right? Because this is him coming to you. Um, this is him pursuing you. And that's the very reason he gives you this meal. Now, if you're, if you're not comfortable with the whole idea of Christianity yet and you don't believe in any of this stuff, then we're really glad you came tonight. And that takes courage and we're glad you're here. And it's a process to, to come to believe, so don't feel any pressure to take this. But um, if, if you feel like you don't deserve it, and I'm too sinful to do this, well, that's missing the whole point. It's more like that's the very qualification to do this, is that you are sinful. And so on the night he's betrayed, and uh, not the night that...